0: Book Three, Chapter One of My Own Story by Emmeline Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand The Women's Revolution, Chapter One Parliament had reassembled on October twenty-fifth, 1911, and the first move on the part of the government was, to say the least of it, rather unpropitious. The Prime Minister submitted two motions, the first one empowering them to take all the time of the House during the remainder of the session, and the second guillotining discussion on the insurance bill, so as to force the measure through before Christmas. One day only was allotted to the clauses relating to women in that bill. These clauses were notoriously unfair. They provided for sickness insurance of about 4 million women and unemployment insurance of no women at all. Under the provision of the bill, 11 million men were insured against sickness and about 2.5 million against unemployment. Women were given lower benefits for the same premium as men, and premiums paid out of the family income were credited solely to the men's account. The bill as drafted provided no form of insurance for wives, mothers, and daughters who spent their lives at home working for the family it penalized women for staying in the home which most men agree is women's only legitimate sphere of action the amended bill grudgingly allowed aside from maternity benefits a small insurance on rather difficult terms for working women's wives thus the re-elected government's first utterance to women was one of contempt and this was followed on november seventh by the almost incredible announcement that the government intended at the next session to introduce a manhood suffrage bill this announcement was not made in the house of commons but to a deputation of men from the people's suffrage federation a small group of people who advocated universal adult suffrage the deputation which was very privately arranged for was received by mr asquith and then the minister of elibank chief liberal whip the spokesman asked mr asquith to bring in a government measure for universal adult suffrage including adult women the prime minister replied that the government had pledged facilities for the conciliation bill which was as far as they were prepared to go in the matter of women's suffrage but he added the government intended in the next session to introduce and to pass through all its stages a genuine reform bill which would sweep away existing qualifications for the franchise and substitute a single qualification of residence the bill would apply to adult males only but it would be so framed as to be open to a women's suffrage amendment in case the house of commons desired to make that extension and amendment this portentous announcement came like a bolt from the blue and there was strong condemnation of the government's treachery to women said the saturday review with absolutely no demand no ghost of a demand for more votes for men and with beyond all cavil a very strong demand for votes for women the government announced their manhood suffrage bill and carefully evade the other question for a naked avowed plan of gerrymandering no government surely ever did beat this one THE DAILY MAIL SAID THAT THE POLICY WHICH MR. ASQUITH PROPOSES IS ABSOLUTELY INDEFENSIBLE. AND THE EVENING STANDARD AND GLOBE SAID, WE ARE NO FRIENDS OF FEMALE SUFFRAGE, BUT ANYTHING MORE CONTEMPTIBLE THAN THE ATTITUDE ASSUMED BY THE GOVERNMENT IT IS DIFFICULT TO IMAGINE. IF THE GOVERNMENT HOPED TO DECEIVE ANYONE BY THEIR DISHONEST REFERENCE TO THE POSSIBILITY OF A WOMAN'S SUFFRAGE AMENDMENT, THEY WERE DISAPPOINTED. SAID THE EVENING NEWS, mr Asquith's bombshell will blow the conciliation bill to smithereens for it is impossible to have a manhood suffrage for men and a property qualification for women true the premier consents to leave the question of women's suffrage to the house but he knows well enough what the decision of the house will be the conciliation bill had a chance but the larger measure has none at all i have quoted these newspaper leaders to show you that our opinion of the government's action was shared even by the press universal suffrage in a country where women are in a majority of one million is not likely to happen in the lifetime of any reader of this volume and the government's generous offer of a possible amendment was nothing more than a gratuitous insult to the suffragists the truce naturally came to an abrupt end the w s p u wrote to the prime minister saying that consternation had been aroused by the government's announcement and that it had been decided accordingly to send a deputation representing the women's social and political union to wait upon himself and the chancellor of the exchequer on the evening of november twenty first the purpose of the deputation was to demand that the proposed manhood suffrage bill be abandoned and that in its place should be introduced a government measure giving equal franchise rights to men and women a similar letter was dispatched to mr lloyd george six times before on occasions of crisis had the wspu requested an interview with mr asquith and each time they had been refused this time the prime minister replied that he had decided to receive a deputation of the various suffrage societies on november seventeenth including your own society if you desire it it was proposed that each society appoint four representatives as members of the deputation which would be received by the prime minister and the chancellor of the exchequer Nine suffrage societies sent representatives to the meeting, our own representatives being Christabel Pankhurst, Mrs. Pethick Lawrence, Miss Annie Kenney, Lady Constance Lytton, and Miss Elizabeth Robbins. Christabel and Mrs. Lawrence spoke for the union, and they did not hesitate to accuse the two ministers to their faces of having grossly tricked and falsely misled women. Mr. Asquith, in his reply to the deputation, resented these imputations he had kept his pledge he insisted in regard to the conciliation bill he was perfectly willing to give facilities to the bill if the women preferred that to an amendment to his reform bill moreover he denied that he had made any new announcement as far back as nineteen o eight he had distinctly declared that the government regarded it as a sacred duty to bring forward a manhood suffrage bill before that parliament came to an end it was true that the government did not carry out that binding obligation and it was also true that until the present time nothing more was ever said about a manhood suffrage bill but that was not the government's fault the crisis of the lord's veto had momentarily displaced the bill now he merely proposed to fulfil his promise made in nineteen o eight and also his promise about giving facilities to the conciliation bill he was ready to keep both promises while he knew that those promises were incompatible that the fulfilment of both was therefore impossible and christabel told him so bluntly and fearlessly we are not satisfied she warned him and the prime minister said acidly i did not expect to satisfy you the reply of the wspu was immediate and forceful led by mrs pethick lawrence our women went out with stones and hammers and broke hundreds of windows in the home office the war and foreign offices the board of education the privy council office the board of trade the Treasury, Somerset House, the National Liberal Club, several post-offices, the old Banqueting Hall, the London and South Western Bank, and a dozen other buildings, including the residence of Lord Haldane and Mr. John Burns. 220 women were arrested and about 150 of them sent to prison for terms varying from a week to two months. One individual protest deserves mention because of its prophetic character in december miss emily wilding davison was arrested for attempting to set fire to a letter-box at parliament street post-office in court miss davison said she did it as a protest against the government's treachery and as a demand that women's suffrage be included in the king's speech the protest was meant to be serious she said and so i adopted a serious course In past agitation for reform, the next step after window-breaking was incendiarism, in order to draw the attention of the private citizens to the fact that this question of reform was their concern as well as that of women. Miss Davison received the severe sentence of six months' imprisonment for her deed. To this state of affairs I returned from my American tour. I had the comfort of reflecting that my imprisoned comrades were being accorded better treatment than the earlier prisoners had known since early in nineteen ten some concessions had been granted and some acknowledgment of the political character of our offences had been made during the brief period when these scant concessions to justice were allowed the hunger strike was abandoned and prison was robbed of its worst horror forcible feeding the situation was bad enough however and i could see that it might easily become a great deal worse we had reached a stage at which the mere sympathy of members of parliament however sincerely felt was no longer of the slightest use reminding our members this in the first speeches made after returning to england i asked them to prepare themselves for more action if women's suffrage was not included in the next king's speech we should have to make it absolutely impossible for the government to touch the question of the franchise the king's speech when parliament met in february nineteen twelve alluded to the franchise question in very general terms proposals it was stated would be brought forward for the amendment of the law with respect to the franchise and the registration of electors this might be construed to mean that the government were going to introduce a manhood suffrage bill or a bill for the abolition of plural voting which had been suggested in some quarters as a substitute for the manhood suffrage bill no precise statement of the government's intentions was made and the whole franchise question was left in a cloud of uncertainty mr ag Gardner, a unionist member of the conciliation committee drew the third place in the ballot, and he announced that he should reintroduce the conciliation bill this interested us very slightly for knowing its prospect of success to have been destroyed for we were done with the conciliation bill forever nothing less than a government measure would henceforth satisfy the w s p u because it had been clearly demonstrated that only a government measure would be allowed to pass the house of commons with sublime faith or rather with a deplorable lack of political insight the women's liberal federation and the national union of women's suffrage societies professed full confidence in the proposed amendment to a manhood suffrage bill but we knew how futile was that hope we saw that the only course to take was to offer determined opposition to any measure of suffrage that did not include as an integral part equal suffrage for men and women on february sixteenth we held a large meeting of welcome to a number of released prisoners who had served two and three months for the window breaking demonstration that had taken place in the previous november at this meeting we candidly surveyed the situation and agreed on a course of action which we believed would be sufficiently strong to prevent the government from advancing their threatened franchise bill i said on this occasion we don't want to use any weapons that are unnecessarily strong If the argument of the stone that time-honored official political argument is sufficient then we will never use any stronger argument and that is the weapon and the argument that we are going to use next time and so i say to every volunteer on our demonstration be prepared to use that argument i am taking charge of the demonstration and that is the argument i am going to use i am not going to use it for any sentimental reason i am going to use it because it is the easiest and most readily understood Why should women go to parliament square and be battered about and insulted and most important of all produce less effect than when we throw stones we tried it long enough we submitted four years patiently to insult and assault women had their health injured women lost their lives we should not have minded if that had succeeded but that did not succeed and we have made more progress with less hurt to ourselves by breaking glass than ever we made when we allowed them to break our bodies after all is not a woman's life is not her health are not her limbs more valuable than panes of glass there is no doubt of that but most important of all does not the breaking of glass produce more effect upon the government if you are fighting a battle that should dictate your choice of weapons well then we are going to try this time if mere stones will do it i do not think it will ever be necessary for us to arm ourselves as chinese women have done but there are women who are prepared to do that if it should be necessary in this union we don't lose our heads we only go as far as we are obliged to go in order to win and we are going forward with this next protest demonstration in full faith that this plan of campaign initiated by our friends whom we honor to-night will on this next occasion prove effective ever since militancy took on the form of destruction of property the public generally both at home and abroad has expressed curiosity as to the logical connection between acts such as breaking windows firing pillar-boxes etc and the vote Only a complete lack of historical knowledge excuses that curiosity. For every advance of men's political freedom has been marked with violence and the destruction of property. Usually the advance has been marked by war, which is called glorious. Sometimes it has been marked by rioting, which are deemed less glorious, but are at least effective. That speech of mine, just quoted, will probably strike the reader as one inciting to violence and illegal action things as a rule in ordinary circumstances quite inexcusable well i will call the reader's attention to what was in this connection a rather singular coincidence at the very hour when i was making that speech advising my audience of the political necessity of physical revolt a responsible member of the government in another hall in another city was telling his audience precisely the same thing this cabinet member the right hon c e h hobhouse addressing a large anti-suffrage meeting in his constituency of bristol said that the suffrage movement was not a political issue because its adherents had failed to prove that behind this movement existed a large public demand he declared that in the case of the suffrage demand there has not been the kind of popular sentimental uprising which accounted for nottingham castle in eighteen thirty two or the hyde park railings in eighteen sixty seven there has not been a great abolition of popular feeling the popular sentimental uprising to which mr hobhouse alluded was the burning to the ground of the castle of the anti-suffrage duke of newcastle and of colwick castle the county seat of another of the leaders of the opposition against the franchise bill the militant men of that time did not select uninhabited buildings to be fired they burned both these historic residences over their owners heads Indeed, the wife of the owner of Colwick Castle died as a result of shock and exposure on that occasion. No arrests were made, no men imprisoned. On the contrary, the king sent for the premier, and begged the Whig ministers favorable to the franchise bill not to resign, and intimated that this was also the wish of the lords who had thrown out the bill. Molesworth's History of England says, These declarations were imperatively called for the danger was imminent and the ministers knew it and did all that lay in their power to tranquillize the people and to assure them that the bill was only delayed and not finally defeated for a time the people believed this but soon they lost patience and seeing signs of a renewed activity on the part of the anti-suffragists they became aggressive again bristol the very city in which mr hobhouse made his speech was set on fire the militant reformers burned the new jail the toll houses the bishop's palace both sides of queen square including the mansion house the custom house the excise office many warehouses and other private property the whole valued at over one hundred thousand pounds five hundred thousand dollars it was as a result of such violence and in fear of more violence that the reform bill was hurried through parliament and became law in june eighteen thirty two our demonstration so mild by comparison with english men's political agitation was announced for march fourth and the announcement created much public alarm Sir William Biles gave notice that he would ask the Secretary of State for the Home Department whether his attention had been drawn to a speech by Mrs. Pankhurst last Friday night, openly and emphatically inciting her hearers to violent outrage and the destruction of property, and threatening the use of firearms if stones did not prove sufficiently effective, and what steps he proposes to take to protect society from this outbreak of lawlessness. The question was duly asked, and the Home Secretary replied that his attention had been called to the speech, but that it would not be desirable in the public interest to say more than this at present. Whatever preparations the police department were making to prevent the demonstration, they failed, because, while, as usual, we were able to calculate exactly what the police department were going to do, they were utterly unable to calculate what we were going to do. We had planned a demonstration for March the fourth, and this one we announced we planned another demonstration for march first but this one we did not announce late in the afternoon of friday march first i drove in a taxicab accompanied by the honourable secretary of the union mrs tooke and another one of our members to number ten downing street the official residence of the prime minister it was exactly half past five when we alighted from the cabin threw our stones four of them through the window panes as we expected we were promptly arrested and then taken to cannon row police station the hour that followed will long be remembered in london at intervals of fifteen minutes relays of women who had volunteered for the demonstration did their work the first smashing of glass occurred in the haymarket and piccadilly and greatly startled and alarmed both pedestrians and police a large number of the women were arrested and everybody thought that this ended the affair but before the excited populace and the frustrated shop owner's first exclamation had died down before the police had reached the station with their prisoners the ominous crashing and splintering of plate glass began again this time along both sides of regent street and the strand a furious rush of police and people toward the second scene of action ensued while their attention was being taken up with occurrences in this quarter the third relay of women began breaking windows in the oxford circus and bond street This demonstration ended for the day at half past six with the breaking of many windows in the Strand. The Daily Mail gave this graphic account of the demonstration. From every part of the crowded and brilliantly lighted streets came the crash of splintered glass. People started as a window shattered at their side. Suddenly there was another crash in front of them, on the other side of the street, behind, everywhere. Scared shop assistants came running out to the pavements. Traffic stopped. Policemen sprang this way and that five minutes later the streets were a procession of excited groups each surrounding a woman wrecker being led in custody to the nearest police station meanwhile the shopping-quarter of london had plunged itself into a sudden twilight shutters were hurriedly fitted the rattle of iron curtains being drawn came from every side guards of commissioners and shopmen were quickly mounted and any unaccompanied lady in sight especially if she carried a handbag, became an object of menacing suspicion at the hour when this demonstration was being made a conference was being held at scotland yard to determine what should be done to prevent the smashing of windows on the coming monday night but we had not announced the hour of our march fourth protest i had in my speech simply invited women to assemble in parliament square on the evening of march fourth and they accepted the invitation said the daily telegraph by six o'clock the neighbourhood houses of parliament were in a stage of siege shopkeepers in almost every instance barricaded their premises removed goods from the windows and prepared for the worst a few minutes before six o'clock a huge force of police amounting to nearly three thousand constables was posted in parliament square whitehall and streets adjoining and large reserves were gathered in westminster hall and scotland yard by half-past eight whitehall was packed from end to end with police and public mounted constables rode up and down whitehall keeping the people on the move at no time was there any sign of danger the demonstration had taken place in the morning when a hundred or more women walked quietly into knightsbridge and walking singly along the streets demolished nearly every pane of glass they passed taken by surprise the police arrested as many as they could reach but most of the women escaped For that two days' work, something like two hundred suffragettes were taken to the various police stations, and for days the long procession of women streamed through the courts. The dismayed magistrates found themselves facing not only former rebels, but many new ones—in some cases women whose names, like that of Dr. Ethel Smith, the composer, were famous throughout Europe. These women, when arraigned, made clear and lucid statements of their positions and their motives, but magistrates are not schooled to examine motives. They are trained to think only of laws and mostly of laws protecting property their ears are not tuned to listen to words like those spoken by one of the prisoners who said we have tried every means processions and meetings which were of no avail we have tried demonstrations and now at last we have to break windows. I wish I had broken more. I am not in the least repentant. Our women are working in far worse condition than the striking miners. I have seen widows struggling to bring up their children. Only two out of every five are fit to be soldiers what is the good of a country like ours? England is absolutely on the wane. You have only one point of view, and that is the men's, and while men have done the best they could, they cannot go far without the women and the women's views. We believe the whole is in a muddle too horrible to think of. The coal miners were at that time engaging in a terrible strike, and the government, instead of arresting the leaders, were trying to come to terms of peace with them i reminded the magistrate of this fact and i told him that what the women had done was but a flea-bite by comparison with the miners violence i said further i hope our demonstration will be enough to show the government that the women's agitation is going on if not if you send me to prison i will go further to show that women who have to help pay the salaries of cabinet ministers and your salary too sir are going to have some voice in the making of the laws they have to obey i was sentenced to two months imprisonment others received sentences ranging from one week to two months while those who were accused of breaking glass above five pounds of value were committed for trial in higher courts they were sent to prison on remand when, and when the last of us were behind grim gates not only holloway but three other women's prisons were taxed to provide for so many extra inmates It was a stormy imprisonment for most of us a great many of the women had received in addition to their sentences hard labor and this meant that the privileges at that time accorded to suffragettes as political offenders were withheld the women adopted the hunger strike as a protest but as the hint was conveyed to me that the privileges would be restored i advised a cessation of the strike the remand prisoners demanded that i be allowed to exercise with them and when this was not answered they broke the windows of their cells the other suffrage prisoners, hearing the sound of shattered glass and the singing of the Marseillaise, immediately broke their windows. The time had long gone by when the suffragettes submitted meekly to prison discipline, and so passed the first days of my imprisonment. End of book three, chapter one.